This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Senior Associate of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mexican, but are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina. And that's what happened. role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. Canadians go to the polls on October 21st, and Justin Trudeau may find himself out of a job. How did it come to this? Welcome to another episode of 35 West. I'm your host, Richard Miles. And this morning, I have as my guest Mr. Canada himself, Christopher Sands, a professor at Johns Hopkins University, where he is the director of the Center for Canadian Studies. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thank you, Richard. So first thing I want to do is I want to put to bed the myth that you're on the show so much because you're the only one that answers my calls and that CSIS Rooftop Terrace is a Molson's beer bottle throw away from Johns Hopkins. I don't know where those stories got started, but... They're not true. They're not true. First of all, we're friends. And second of all, uh, there aren't that many Americans who follow Canada. Uh, I'm one of them. Uh, so I'm only Mr. Canada by marriage. I'm not actually Mr. Canada by uh, birthright. And I love CSIS. I got my start here many, many years ago. So when you call, I'm here. So you're the only game in town. So I hope you're using this in your next salary negotiations, right, for, you know, no one does Canada like Chris Sands. Scarcity is the root of all value. <laughs> All right, let's start talking. As I mentioned in the lead-in, let's start talking about the Canadian elections uh, almost right around the corner, right, five weeks or so away. And let's start at the 10-foot level. In other words, what do the polls say? What, what are the you know, prognosticators say? Who's ahead? Who's behind? What are those sort of uh, short-term dynamics going on? Well, right now, Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party, his Liberal Party, are running fairly close. We've seen polls going up and down with the conservatives led by Andrew Scheer. They're the leading opposition party. Those are the only two parties that have ever formed a Canadian government. Depending on the week, you, you see one party slide ahead and the other party slide down. It's been a real seesaw contest. Part of the dynamic, though, is that on the right and on the left, there are third parties, if you will, unlikely to form government, but that bleed away support in key constituencies. On the left, the liberals tend to be fighting with the New Democratic Party, which is a social democratic party, but also the Green Party. And one of the things that's been very interesting in the campaign so far is that we've seen the NDP lose support. They have a leader, Jagmeet Singh, who's untested in a national campaign, and I think many NDP members are frustrated with him. On the other side, the Greens have been surging, led by Elizabeth May, a more experienced parliamentarian, strong base in British Columbia, but also some success in other parts of the country, including Ontario. And so Justin Trudeau started moving from the center to address NDP concerns, but increasingly he's being challenged on the environment by the Greens. On the right, normally there is no competition, but in this campaign we see a new party called the People's Party, uh, led by Maxime Bernier, who was the contender with Andrew Scheer to be the leader of the Conservatives, lost and decided to form his own party, sort of a protest party. It's named loosely for Jose Aznar's party in Spain as Partido Popular. It's the People's Party. They surprisingly have managed to get candidates in almost every riding in the country already, make, meaning that they could be a vote splitter on the right. With those two polls on the outside from both the right and the left, the liberals and the conservatives, who both hew fairly close to the center, can't count on their base. And so there's been a lot of movement. And this is why the seesaw has been so important going into this campaign. 
So, and I should emphasize, we're recording this on September 17th, and I'm, I'm only saying that because we're going to absolve you, Chris, from any, any you know, weird poll uh, shifts after this date. But on that point, uh, you know, the, in, in American elections, I mean, a lot of Americans don't pay attention to really like the last 30 days of the campaign. Is that dynamic proportionally similar in Canada? Do a lot of Canadians make up their mind and say in the last 10 days? Or do the picture that we see now, is that kind of what we can expect on election eve. No, people do decide late. One of the things that we know from political science is that Canadian voter identification with party tends to be fairly low. People are open to vote switching. Often Quebec will engage in some strategic voting. They tend to swing one way or another, and the signals can be almost the day before. And they will all of a sudden, in one campaign, uh, they surge the NDP even though the NDP had almost no support in the province before then. The other thing that happens with Canadian voters is they often vote in contradistinction to what, how they vote provincially. Technically, the federal and provincial parties or branches of the party are not connected. And so often you'll see if the liberals are in power federally, conservatives will do better provincially as voters choose one to contest with the other, feeling that the friction, federal-provincial, will bring home more bacon for their riding so or their constituency. So we have conservative governments in Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, also uh, Manitoba at the moment, and Saskatchewan and Alberta. So all of those conservative governments are winning support, but that has tended to strengthen the liberals. So you have a lot of these dynamics in play, and often people will work on a particular issue One other thing which is notable, even though people are voting for a member of parliament in their individual constituency, the name recognition of some of these MPs is very low. What they say in the parliamentary system is the people elect a parliament, parliament elects a government. And in recent years, the prime minister or the party leader have taken an outsized role. You may not be voting for that person, only a handful of Canadians are, but the role of the leader has been more important, and particularly for Justin Trudeau as an incumbent and part of what's now a political dynasty, his father's name's quite famous, he'll play a big role, and people's attitudes about him will help determine how they vote locally. Let's lift our, our gaze a little bit uh, to the, the horizon on some of the bigger factors or perhaps more fundamental factors affecting the election. And you wrote an interesting piece a couple months ago arguing that, that foreign policy may play a bigger role in this election than it has traditionally played in Canadian elections. And from the outset, let me, let, let's distinguish between sort of trade policy, which I know is a big chunk of actually Canadian foreign policy, but let's fence that off for the moment. Let's talk about sort of the non-trade foreign policy issues. And why don't we do, if you could give us a recap of the last four years uh, for Justin Trudeau and his party, sort of what went right on the foreign policy front, again, non-trade issues, and what went wrong? Well, first of all, the reason the foreign policy is rarely an issue in Canadian elections is that Canadians on all sides agree that Canada should be a good international citizen engaged in the world, and at the same time should do so modestly. That is to say, don't spend too much money on foreign affairs. So that's the baseline, and the parties rarely argue about it because everyone agrees. A little matter of emphasis here and there, but one of the characteristics of being a middle power, a relatively smaller power, is that the voters don't think that a prime minister can change very much. So even if there is, say, a difficult issue, for example, Canada's tensions with China now, no one thinks, oh, another prime minister would have done that better. They all know that they're just coping with the challenges of the world. And so that's why going in, most people don't think there's going to be a foreign policy element to the election. What's changed this time and what I think is quite interesting is, first of all, 
we've gone from the post-Cold War period where there was almost a, a dominance by the United States, but a resurgence in interest in multilateral institutions where Canada is quite comfortable, to a period now with great power rivalry where Canada is often caught in the middle and struggles to get great powers to listen to it. The world's become more dangerous. A second issue, which we should expand on later, is that the U.S. has become very unpredictable, perhaps unreliable, questioning the NATO commitment on Article 5, for example, or 2017 G7 summit, which was the first time that President Trump went to Canada, insulting the prime minister as being weak and dishonest. These are not what people expect from the United States, um, and that's made people nervous. But maybe the reason, the most important reason why I expected maybe a foreign policy election this year is that Justin Trudeau's brand had been associated with a number of domestic things. But on foreign policy, he promised Canada would be back, which is kind of a- uh, Ambiguous to say the least, right? <laughs> it's ambiguous, but it, it was meant to refer to the good old days of, of Lester Pearson and his father as sort of international do-gooders playing an outsized role, as, as Canadians like to say, punching above their weight. In practice, however, in recent years, what Justin Trudeau has delivered is a foreign policy that is very similar to his predecessor, Stephen Harper's foreign policy, with the possible exception of being less positive and encouraging about Israel. In almost every other area, their foreign policy has been quite similar, but the results have been more difficult. Canada is very strongly pro-Ukraine. There are a lot of Ukrainian Canadians. And so they have very poor relations with Russia. And in fact, the foreign minister, who is ethnically Ukrainian, Christia Freeland, has been banned from Russia for almost a decade now. And and there's very little contact between the two. Even at G7 or G20 summits, the, the two sides rarely talk. China is the other big challenge. Because Canada arrested the head of Huawei, Meng Wanzhou, the chief financial officer of Huawei, who's the daughter of the president and CEO and chairman, on a U.S. warrant for her direct involvement in the company's skirting of Iran sanctions, Meng Wanzhou has been in Canadian custody ever since as they go through the process of extradition hearings, which take time. Meanwhile, China has taken hostage two Canadians who happen to be on the ground, ordered the death penalty for a couple other Canadians who were, on, who were also in China, and has launched a series of trade actions against Canadian agricultural exports, principally soybeans, canola oil, and also beef. This has been unprecedented, and the hostility of the Chinese towards Canada came to many Canadians as quite a shock. You can add to that some minor issues. Although Canada, like Saudi Arabia, right? There was a dust tap with Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Arabia yeah. Yes. Saudi Arabia is interesting because Canada's foreign minister in Canada made some criticisms of the Saudi human rights record connected in particular to two dual citizens who were involved in a, in a conflict, human rights activists in Saudi Arabia. The Saudis reacted quite sharply to this criticism and then recalled the ambassador, ordered students at Canadian medical schools to come back to Saudi Arabia and threaten further sanctions. It took a while. Canada was able to get back to normal with Saudi Arabia. But I think many Canadians were shaken with the fact that the U.S. was largely silent when this happened and that other countries avoided saying anything at all to come to Canada's aid. And that uh, was a reminder for many ordinary Canadians that sometimes your friends don't stand with you. And that's, in a dangerous world, very disconcerting. I was going to make that very point in that, you know, up through the Cold War period and for the immediate period afterwards, 
a situation in which, you know, some country took Canadian citizens as hostages or vice versa, there would have been no daylight at all between Ottawa and Washington. This would have been you know, the same statements or similar statements would have come out protesting, blah, blah, blah. And now you're in a, in a zone where you're right. <laughs> Your good buddy ain't there. And, and where did they go? And it well, makes it, everything a little bit more uncertain. And at the summer's uh, G20 summit in Osaka, Japan, the Chinese leader Xi Jinping refused to meet with Trudeau to talk about this. Trudeau came to Washington the week before and asked President Trump to raise this with the Chinese. President said he would, then went, and after the summit told the press, oh, no, it never came up. So it was, it was quite a shock <laughs> for the Canadians. They'd asked directly. They had a on-camera commitment, and it didn't And I happen. believe that's the first time President Trump's ever done that, right? <laughs> Well, just to say it goes back to my point about the U.S. being unpredictable. Right, and right. I think Canadians should be having this foreign policy debate. I can't take any credit for it, but the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto picked up on this idea and invited all of the party leaders to have a foreign policy debate in the context of this campaign. They had done the same thing in 2015, and the prime minister had made a real splash with uh, his very confident sense of world mm -hmm. affairs, very similar to what you would have expected, say, from uh, President Obama as well, uh, very fluent on all of these issues. And this time, Justin Trudeau's refused to participate in a debate on Canadian foreign policy, even at the University of Toronto's Monk School, he's only agreed to three debates, one in English and two in French, which tells you he's a little worried about the Quebec side of his uh -huh. electorate right now. But I think for many Canadians uh, now, the discussion of foreign policy seems really important, but the actual response from the leaders has not been great. Let's switch now to talk about Justin Trudeau and Donald Trump and you know, sort of shorthand for U.S.-Canadian foreign policy. And in this context, we are going to talk about trade, obviously, because trade has been the big driving factor. And so to update our listeners, President Trump came in, wanted to renegotiate NAFTA. We know how that went, sort of weathered that storm, at least in the negotiation process, got through it. Canada was happy to sign. It still hasn't been ratified. But then we get to the G7, was it last year, in which uh, we, you know, President Trump insulted Trudeau and where are we since then? What have Canadian-U.S. relationships looked like since then? And on trade issues, again, what is the latest status of the things like the softwood lumber and the Section 232 tariffs? Uh, and how are those set of issues affecting the election? Well, it's, it's a big basket. And there's nothing more important for Canada than U.S. relations in the foreign policy sphere. It's sort of the U.S. and the rest on almost any issue. So that's important. Secondly, I have to say the prime minister has been, like Stephen Harper before him, very conservative as in risk averse with regard to the United States. Most Canadians, almost all, but not all, but most, don't like Donald Trump. He is too abrasive, too impolite, too so many things Canadians don't like. Not and Canadian nice. Not Canadian nice, that's <laughs> for sure. And, and yet most Canadians understand you know, viscerally, that it is very important to have good relations with the United States, whoever they elect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the prime minister's had a lot of room to try and even get pushback from the U.S. No one thinks a different leader would do any better. All Canadian prime ministers will make it a priority. All Canadian prime ministers will work to make the relationship work. So as, as a result, even during the USMCA negotiations, the renegotiation of NAFTA that created the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, USMCA, no one 
really made an issue of it domestically. Uh, the conservatives largely supported the government, uh, urged them to move faster, were critical when Canada was temporarily sort of frozen out as the U.S. and Mexico began pushing the negotiations further. And in this area, they've tended to support the government. It's sort of Team Canada, if you will. Now that the agreement is completed, Mexico's ratified it, the United States is in the process of ratifying it. Canada introduced it in the current parliament, but then when the writ of election dropped Wednesday, everything on the order paper dropped. So when the new government comes back, they will have to re-up mm -hmm. or reintroduce the bill in order to pass it. If the U.S. Congress approves the agreement, Canada certainly will. And it doesn't really matter whether it's a liberal government, a conservative government, or even a minority government, which is a possibility. It's because too big a deal to it's not. It's too big a deal not to. Some of the other issues that you mentioned, softwood lumber, for example, were in a terrible state. The U.S. had charged Canada on softwood lumber. They decided to lay countervailing duties on the Canadian lumber, and the talks have gone nowhere since. Canada's tried some dispute resolution cases to see if they could move that along, but nothing's moved very well. There were also steel and aluminum tariffs uh, invoked by the United States against Canadian steel and aluminum under Section 232 of the 1962 Trade Expansion Act. Those were very controversial when they came in, and many Canadians expected them to be lifted when the USMCA deal was complete. They were not. But after another month or two, the U.S. did lift those tariffs on both Canada and Mexico in order to encourage Canada and Mexico to support the USMCA with the U.S. Congress. But that certainly made people very nervous. There was an anti-dumping case Boeing brought against Bombardier for jets, uh, particularly small jets. That was resolved by the U.S. International Trade Commission, which dropped the case ultimately. And now we're left with just a handful of disputes. Canada has been, we think, uh, exempted from the potential Section 232 tariffs on autos, which would be a huge deal. But we're in a kind of trade limbo where problems that have been kind of beavering along, continue to do so, and the USMCA would resolve some but not all of those. Maybe one last footnote. Canada has made a real priority of addressing and trying to build coalitions in support of WTO reform because of the US hostility to the WTO dispute resolution system and a concern that we haven't had a new round since the Uruguay round that's gone full term. Uh, obviously, Seattle round died on its first day, and um, and the Doha round really petered out with some plurilateral agreements, but nothing, uh, no major round accomplishment. So the Canadians are quite worried that this, this needs to be resolved. They have a minister of trade expansion, or uh, Bill Carr, who's been trying to pull together a group of like-minded countries to try to do what they can to diversify Canadian trade and also support WTO reform. They're talking to the converted small countries like themselves who would love to see the WTO change, but so far they haven't seen the results of that in terms of big buy-in from China and the United States and the European Union. That's probably the trio that has to support a new round. So on all of these things, um, there's been progress, but no closure, no reassuring accomplishment. Certainly nothing that Justin Trudeau can point to and say, see this mess, mm -hmm. I fixed it, I accomplished these things. Instead, his record with the United States is, I survived. Right. Uh, I stood up for us, I got us through the worst, it's not as bad as it could be, and I think- It probably just fits on a t-shirt too, yeah. I survived, right? <laughs> I survived, yes. And I think uh, even the conservatives would say at this stage, they, they, they're not sure they would or could do any better. Right. I was going to make that point, too, in, in terms of being able to profile yourself as a politician for having a distinct position that your opponent does not. Even this doesn't really enable Trudeau to say, well, I, I'm doing things totally different than my opponent because, as you said, the Canadian default position, essentially, we got to figure this out and make it work. Um, Absolutely. Not too much. Let, let's turn philosophical a little bit, maybe tying together a lot of the threads we've talked about here, Chris. 
um, in terms of the Canadian national identity, it always, always sort of been a, a tricky thing in terms of a lot of it has been defined in relation to the United States simply because mm-hmm. of its history and its culture and so on. In the realm of foreign policy, you know, some people argue that, uh, look, this cleft didn't start with President Trump. You know, this has been going back at least, you know, maybe towards the end of the Cold War as sort of the post-Atlantic uh, alliance has started to fray a little bit and, and weaken. And let's not forget that Ross Perot made NAFTA a big, huge campaign issue back in, what, 1992. Mm-hmm. Is there any sort of counterpart to the political polarization we've seen in the United States in Canada, insofar as, gosh, maybe the United States is a totally different country than we thought it was. <laughs> and therefore, we as Canada or as Canadians need to start doing other things uh, on the world stage. You know, is that even sort of at the conceptual think tank level? I mean, I know it hasn't expressed itself in politics, but are there voices out there saying we, we really need to chart a different course in the world and not just sort of uh, react to what the United States is doing? That's a very interesting question, and I I think there are two ways in which that could be said to be true. First, like the United States, many Canadians are looking for uh, not the muddled middle but a clear answer that resonates with important values. And in that sense, you do see some polarization, which is why the rise of unlikely to form government protest parties, the third parties, has been has been so strong. People who want something pure, more consistent and predictable rather than a brokerage politics in the middle. The second area where it, it it's interesting, I, I don't I try to go back to maybe the 1960s when Canadians looked at the United States and saw the Vietnam War protests and saw the civil rights movement. And many Canadians sort of woke up to the fact that there was a lot going on in the U.S. that didn't have a counterpart in Canada, that they found kind of alarming uh, the degree to which people were in the streets and feeling quite passionate about some of the big causes of the time. And Canada didn't didn't have those things and so looked on and felt a degree of alienation. The Americans aren't, you know, they're having these fights. We're probably superior because we don't have the race riots and we don't have uh, Vietnam splitting us. And weren't we clever not to get involved in that war? But also it's disconcerting because it makes them feel less like family, more like the outsiders looking in to forces that crowd out Canada off the agenda and leave them feeling like, well, that's a very different country. So I think that is something that is is in play here. Maybe another dimension too, if you went back arbitrarily 100 years, what you would have found is that Canadians tended to oscillate or go back and forth between the relationship with the U.S. and the relationship with the British Empire. If they were close to the U.S., there was always a counterpole of people saying, no, no, let's remember that we're part of the British Empire. And if the British were sort of dominating, they would also say, well, we, but we can't forget the Americans. Let's push that way. That's evolved into kind of a different dynamic today where the United States is counterbalanced by the rest of the world, the multilateral system and so on. So in the coming year, Canada is going to make a play to have a rotating seat on the UN Security Council and the United Nations. This is a big deal for Canada. In every decade since its founding, Canada has held a rotating seat on the UN Security Council except for one, and that has been the last decade, uh, the 10s, I guess, if you will, the 2010s. And that was because Stephen Harper made a high-profile effort. Some people thought it was a very half-hearted effort to get on the Security Council and was rejected. So this has become a top priority for the Liberals, both to show that they're better and smarter than 
Harper, but also to have a, a tangible sign that the rest of the world, look, see, this is where we're leading. It's not all about the Americans. I think people have looked for Canada to have a bigger role in international relations as a result, and they just can't get attention. Two big things. They agreed to send a group of helicopters and from the Canadian Army to support a peacekeeping mission in Mali. It was a modest complement to a larger UN effort. They stayed just the minimum amount of time that they'd pledged and they came home. And many people said, why are we leaving so soon? We, we should stick with this as an important mission. It's very much in our tradition. Similarly, Justin Trudeau sent a group of from the Canadian Army to help take command of the NATO mission to retrain Iraqi troops. Now, Canada avoided the Iraq war. They went to Afghanistan but avoided Iraq. So this was a high-profile commitment to a very violent part of the world. And Canada, you know, it was barely a ripple in the newspapers. Certainly, it was not something that the U.S. and other countries really made a focal point in praising Canada for. So it's a big risk with a low reward in terms of image. So those are the kinds of things where you're starting to see Canadians yearning to do something, but they really want to hear that the world loves them back. Interesting. Okay, we started this podcast at the 10-foot level. We're now going to descend to the 5-foot level. What happens if Justin Trudeau and his party do not win? What does Justin Trudeau do? You know, what do ex-Canadian prime ministers do? Do they get a book deal, a speaking tour? You know, they can stay in parliament if they win their seat, right? I mean, he's a young guy. Uh, what, what's his future look like? Well, I think that's an interesting question. So, so first to clarify, um, there are 338 seats in the Canadian House of Commons. And so you need 156 to have a majority. You can also form a government if you have less than 156, mm -hmm. but usually that requires either a coalition government, which is rare in Canada, or you have to do strategic voting. You put very little before the parliament and you rely on a, another party that sort of votes with you on things. When Stephen Harper was in a minority government uh, in his first two mandates, he could count on the liberals to support the mission in Afghanistan because they'd initiated it. He could count on the liberals for the most part on budget issues. But then if he needed a few votes, he might get the NDP to support him by saying, I'll give some money to bike sharing in Vancouver. Right. And it was enough. Harper was not the first minority government in modern times. Uh, Paul Martin, the previous mm -hmm. liberal prime minister, ran a minority government as well. So this is a real possibility. If it's a minority government situation, I think Justin Trudeau stays as long as he wins his he seat, won. which he should, yeah. he'll stay in government. He'll stay because even as opposition leader, minority government can easily fall and he could get back in. And if he's the leader, if he's clever, he can make that minority government last for a couple of years and then get some more accomplishments and run again. Particularly if the U.S. changes leaders in the 2020 election, that might help him or he'd have better prospects perhaps with a post-Trump president. So I think that would be how he'd play it. If his party doesn't make it into government, nor is it leading the opposition, let's say that there's a real disaster, which mm -hmm. can happen, then I think the prime minister might want to stay on, but I think the Liberal Party might also get rid of him. Yeah. And the reason is that the, it, this is a party that was, we said in the 20th century, the Liberal Party was the natural party of government in Canada because it was such a centrist, poll-driven party. But it's also true that they really like being in power. There are a lot of people who, who need to be close to power. And if the prime minister has been a modest success, I think they'll start looking. A couple people that are mentioned, Mark Carney, the current governor of the Bank of England, who will be available. He's an Anglophone. That would be a 
They typically change between English and mm-hmm. French leaders. All this French is quite good, but he would take over potentially for Trudeau. That would be an obvious choice. There are others sort of floating in the wings that people mm-hmm. have talked about, and certainly the former Justice Minister, Judy Wilson-Raybould, um, who the prime minister kicked out of the party yes, and right. kicked out of uh, cabinet, yeah. might well make a challenge to try to take that uh, job. So with people like that in the offing, I think Justin Trudeau would have to watch his back. If he found himself out of a job entirely, he is a young man. Uh, his father's uh, friend set up the uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation that does a number of charitable things, including offering fellowships for Canadian students to study abroad, something like what the Fulbright does. I could see him working there or starting a new charity. He's uh, certainly a big fan of uh, quite a number of charities. Paul Martin, when he left government, supported uh, First Nations or Aboriginal rights. Mm -hmm. He might actually try to have a hand in that, although he hasn't been very successful on that file in government, so it may may or may not go that direction. But I think we haven't seen the last of him. He would stay in in the public eye for sure. And in a pinch, Chris, he could come down to Washington sort of help you explain Canada to Americans, right? (laughs) The Justin Trudeau show or something like that. He'd be more than welcome. (laughs) I I think it's very interesting. I've been watching, obviously, American politics, and in in all of the Democratic presidential leadership debates, we have not seen a discussion of the USMCA or North American trade, but we have seen a discussion of Justin Trudeau's hair. So he's made an impact. (laughs) Uh, It may be more than he would like to have done, but he's So, Mr. Prime Minister, if you're listening to this podcast, and I'm sure you are, Chris Sands is going to hook you up. He'll find you a position down here somewhere. Yes. And and, and this is maybe worth a a footnote as well. Because he was uh, working closely with the prime minister and wanted to play a role in the campaign, uh, Canadian ambassador in Washington, David McNaughton, Mm -hmm. resigned before the writ was dropped and, and returned to Canada. So we are currently operating with a deputy ambassador, Kirsten Hillman, who's, who's holding the chair in Washington. President Trump recently also shifted Ambassador Kelly Kraft to become the U.S. representative at the United Nations. And so we have a charge d'affaires running the embassy in Ottawa. So I th- in a normal t- period, you'd see the two ambassadors to each other's countries be almost the team captains mm-hmm. of coordinating responses on bilateral issues of real importance. The fact that both chairs are empty now, I think, uh, leaves us a bit at a disadvantage when, if any of these issues explode. I think the U.S. in particular is waiting to see how the outcome of the Canadian election goes. There's been some a couple of names floated as potential ambassadors to go to Canada. If it's a minority government or a new government, new prime minister, it'll be really important to have someone who can make connections with the White House to rebuild those relationships. If it's a return of Trudeau, that'll become less important. Similarly, if, if Trudeau's back, he'll need to have a strong representative in Washington because mm-hmm. he can't count on things going swimmingly, even if Donald Trump loses the next election. Similarly, the conservatives would want a new face. So we're, we'll see some interesting ripples from this election, both in Canada, but also in terms of bilateral relations. Chris, it's been a joy having you on again. Um, look forward to having you on at least once more and uh, look forward to your normal payment of a half pack of Molson's. I get the other half, of course, uh, showing up on your doorstep soon. Excellent. I'd be glad to deliver on that promise. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit the America's Program page at csis.org.